Chapter Ten, Part One of Hilda Wade. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Hilda Wade, A Woman with Tenacity of Purpose by Grant Allen. Chapter Ten, Part One. The Episode of the Guide Who Knew the Country. We toured all round India with the Meadowcrofts, and really the lady who was so very exclusive turned out not a bad little thing when once one has succeeded in breaking through the ring fence with which she surrounded herself. She had an endless, quenchless restlessness, it is true. Her eyes wandered aimlessly. She never was happy for two minutes together, unless she was surrounded by friends and was seeing something. What she saw did not interest her much. Certainly her tastes were on the level with those of a very young child. An odd-looking house, a queerly dressed man, a tree cut into shape to look like a peacock, delighted her far more than the most glorious view of the quaintest old temple. Still she must be seeing. She could no more sit still than a fidgety child or a monkey at the zoo. To be up and doing was her nature, doing nothing, to be sure, but still doing it strenuously. So we went the regulation round of Delhi and Agra, the Taj Mahal and the Ghats at Benares, at railroad speed fulfilling the whole duty of the modern globetrotter. Lady Meadowcroft looked at everything for ten minutes at a stretch. Then she wanted to be off, to visit the next thing set down for her in her guidebook. As we left each town, she murmured mechanically, "'Well, we've seen that, thank heaven,' and straightway went on with equal eagerness and equal boredom to see the one after it. The only thing that did not bore her, indeed, was Hilda's bright talk. "'Oh, Miss Wade,' she would say, clasping her hands and looking up into Hilda's eyes with her own empty blue ones, "'You are so funny!' so original don't you know you never talk or think of anything like other people i can't imagine how such ideas come up in your mind if i were to try all day i'm sure i should never hit upon them which was so perfectly true as to be a trifle obvious sir ivor not being interested in temples but in steel rails had gone on at once to his concession or contract or whatever else it was, on the northeast frontier, leaving his wife to follow and rejoin him in the Himalayas as soon as she had exhausted the sights of India. So, after a few dusty weeks of wear and tear on the Indian railways, we met him once more in the recesses of Nepal, where he was busy constructing a light local line for the reigning Maharaja. If Lady Meadowcroft had been bored at Allahabad and Ashmer, she was immensely more bored in a rough bungalow among the tracks depth of the Himalayan valleys. To anybody with eyes in his head, indeed, Tolo, where Sir Ivor had pitched his headquarters, was lovely enough to keep one interested for a twelvemonth. Snow-clad needles of rock hemmed it in on either side great deodars rose like huge tapers on the hillsides the plants and flowers were a joy to look at 
but lady meadowcroft did not care for flowers which one could not wear in one's hair and what was the good of dressing here with no one but ivor and dr cumberledge to see one she yawned till she was tired then she began to grow peevish why ivor would you want to build a railway at all in this stupid silly place she said as we sat in the veranda in the cool evening i'm sure i can't imagine we must go somewhere this is maddening maddening miss wade dr cumberledge i count upon you to discover something for me to do if i vegetate like this seeing nothing all day long but those eternal hills she clenched her little fist i shall go mad with ennui hilda had a happy thought i have a fancy to see some of these buddhist monasteries she said smiling as one smiles at a tiresome child whom one likes in spite of everything you remember i was reading that book of mr simpson's on the steamer coming out a curious book about the buddhist praying wheels and it made me want to see one of their temples immensely what do you say to camping out a few weeks in the hills it would be an adventure at any rate camping out lady meadowcroft exclaimed half roused from her languor by the idea of a change oh do you think that would be fun should we sleep on the ground but wouldn't it be dreadfully horribly uncomfortable not half so uncomfortable as you'll find yourself here at toulou in a few days emmy her husband put in grimly the rains will soon be on lass and when the rains are on by all account they're precious heavy hereabouts rare fine rains so that a man's half flooded out of his bed of nights which won't suit you my lady the poor little woman clasped her twitching hands in feeble agony oh ivor how dreadful is it what they call the mongoose or monsoon or something but if they're so bad here surely they'll be worse in the hills and camping out too won't they not if you go the right way to work i'm told it never rains the other side of the hills the mountains stop the clouds and once you're over you're safe enough only you must take care to keep well in the maharaja's territory cross the frontier to the other side into tibet and they'll skin thee alive as soon as look at thee they don't like strangers in tibet prejudiced against them somehow they pretty well skinned that young chap lander who tried to go there a year ago but ivor i don't want to be skinned alive i'm not an eel please that's all right lass leave that to me i can get thee a guide a man that's very well acquainted with the mountains i was talking to a scientific explorer here the other day and he knows of a good guide who can take you anywhere he'll get you the chance of seeing the inside of a buddhist monastery if you like miss wade he's hand in glove with all the religion they've got in this part of the country they've got no one much but at what there is he's a rare devout one we discussed the matter fully for two or three days before we made up our minds lady meadowcroft was undecided between her hatred of dullness and her haunting fear that scorpions and snakes would intrude upon our tents and beds while we were camping 
In the end, however, the desire for change carried the day. She decided to dodge the rainy season by getting behind the Himalayan passes, in the dry region to the north of the great range, where rain seldom falls, the country being watered only by the melting of the snows on the high summits. This decision delighted Hilda, who, since she came to India, had fallen a prey to the fashionable vice of amateur photography. She took to it enthusiastically. She had bought herself a first-rate camera of the latest scientific pattern at Bombay, and ever since had spent all her time and spoiled her pretty hands in developing. She was also seized with a craze for Buddhism. The objects that everywhere particularly attracted her were the old Buddhist temples and tombs and sculptures with which India is studied. Of these she had taken some hundreds of views, all printed by herself with the greatest care and precision. But in India, after all, Buddhism is a dead creed. Its monuments alone remain. She was anxious to see the Buddhist religion in its living state, and that she could only do in these remote outlying Himalayan valleys. Our outfit therefore included a dark tent for Hilda's photographic apparatus, a couple of roomy tents to live and sleep in, a small cooking stove, a cook to look after it, half a dozen bearers, and the highly recommended guide who knew his way about the country. In three days we were ready, to Sir Ivor's great delight. He was fond of his pretty wife, and proud of her, I believe, but when once she was away from the whirl and bustle of the London that she loved, it was a relief to him. I fancy to pursue his work alone, unhampered by her restless and querulous childishness. On the morning when we were to make our start, the guide, who was well acquainted with the mountains, turned up, as villainous-looking a person as I have ever set eyes on. He was sullen and furtive. I judged him at sight to be half Hindu and half Tibetan. He had a dark complexion between brown and tawny narrow slant eyes very small and beady black with a cunning leer in their oblique corners a flat nose much broadened at the wings a cruel thick sensuous mouth and high cheekbones the whole surmounted by a comprehensive scowl and an abundant crop of lank black hair tied up in a knot at the nape of the neck with a yellow ribbon his face was shifty his short stout form looked well adapted to mountain climbing and also to wriggling. A deep scar on his left cheek did not help to inspire confidence, but he was polite and civil-spoken, altogether a clever, unscrupulous, wide-awake soul, who would serve you well if he thought he could make by it, and would betray you at a pinch to the highest bidder. We set out in merry mood, prepared to solve all the abstruse problems of the Buddhist religion. Our spoiled child stood the camping out better than I expected. She was fretful, of course, and worried about trifles. She missed her maid and her accustomed comforts, but she reminded the roughing it less, on the whole, than she had minded the boredom of inaction in the bungalow, and being cast on Hilda and myself for resources, she suddenly evolved an unexpected taste for producing, developing, and printing photographs. We took dozens, as we went along, of little villages on our route, wood-built villages with quaint houses and turrets, 
and as hilda had brought her collection of prints with her for comparison of the indian and nepalese monuments we spent the evenings after our short day's march each day in arranging and collecting them we had planned to be away six weeks at least in that time the monsoon would have burst and passed our guide thought we might see all that was worth seeing of the buddhist monasteries and sir ivor thought we should have fairly escaped the dreaded wet season what do you make of our guide i asked hilda on our fourth day out i began somehow to distrust him oh he seems all right hilda answered carelessly and her voice reassured me he's a rouge of course all guides and interpreters and dragomans and the like in out-of-the-way places always are rouge if they were honest men they would share the ordinary prejudice of their countrymen and would have nothing to do with the hated stranger but in this case our friend ramdas has no end to gain by getting us into mischief if he had he wouldn't scruple for a second to cut our throats but then there are too many of us he will probably try to cheat us by making preposterous charges when he gets us back to Tulu. but that's lady meadowcroft's business i don't doubt sir ivor will be more than a match for him there i'll back one shrewd yorkshireman against any three tibetan half-castes any day you're right that he would cut our throats if it served his purpose i answered his servile and servility goes hand in hand with treachery the more i watch him the more i see scoundrel written in large type on every bend of the fellow's oily shoulders oh yes he's a bad lot i know the cook who can speak a little english and a little tibetan as well as hindustani tells me ramdas has the worst reputation of any man in the mountains but he says he's a very good guide to the passes for all that and if he's well paid will do what he's paid for next day but one we approached at last after several short marches the neighborhood of what our guide assured us was a buddhist monastery i was glad when he told us of it giving the place the name of a well-known nepalese village for to say the truth i was beginning to get frightened judging by the sun for i had brought no compass it struck me that we seemed to have been marching almost due north ever since we left Tulu, and i fancied such a line of march must have brought us by this time suspiciously near the tibetan frontier now i had no desire to be skinned alive as sir ivor put it i did not wish to emulate st bartholomew and others of the early christian martyrs so i was pleased to learn that we were really drawing near kulak the first of the nepalese buddhist monasteries to which our well-informed guide himself a buddhist had promised to introduce us we were tramping up a beautiful high mountain valley closed round on every side by snowy peaks a brawling river ran over a rocky bed in cataracts down its midst crags rose abruptly a little in front of us halfway up the slope to the left on a ledge of rock rose a long low building with curious pyramid-like roofs crowned at either end by a sort of minaret which resembled more than anything else a huge earthenware oil jar this was the monastery or lamasery we had come so far to see honestly at first sight i did not feel sure it was worth the trouble 
Our guide called a halt and turned to us with a sudden peremptory air. His servility had vanished. You stop e here, he said slowly in broken English, while me a go on to see whether Lama Sahib's ready to take you. Must ask leave from Lama Sahib's to visit village. If no ask leave, he drew his hand across his throat with a significant gesture. Lama Sahib's cut head of Ulopian. Goodness gracious, Lady Meadowcroft cried, clinging tight to Hilda. Miss Wade, this is dreadful. Where on earth have you brought us to? Oh, that's all right, Hilda answered, trying to soothe her, though she herself began to look a trifle anxious. That's only Ramdas' graphic way of putting things. We sat down on a bank of trailing club moss by the side of the rough track, for it was nothing more, and let our guide go on to negotiate with the lamas. Well, tonight, anyhow, I exclaimed, looking up, we shall sleep on our own mattresses with a roof over our heads. These monks will find us quarters. That's always something. We got out our basket and made tea. In all moments of doubt, your Englishwoman makes tea. As Hilda said, she will boil her Etna on Vesuvius. We waited and drank our tea. We drank our tea and waited. A full hour passed away. Ramdas never came back. I began to get frightened. At last something stirred. A group of excited men in yellow robes issued forth from the monastery, wound their way down the hill, and approached us shouting. They gesticulated as they came. I could see they looked angry. All at once Hilda clutched my arm. Hubert, she cried in an undertone, we are betrayed. I see it all now. These are Tibetans, not Nepalese. She paused a second, then went on. I see it all, all, all. Our guide rammed us. He had a reason, after all, for getting us into mischief. Sebastian must have tracked us. He was bribed by Sebastian. It was he who recommended Ramdas to Sir Ivor. Why do you think so? I asked low. Because, look for yourself, these men who come are dressed in yellow. That means Tibetans. Red is the color of the lamas in Nepal, yellow in Tibet, and all other Buddhist countries. I read it in the book, the Buddhist praying wheel, you know. These are Tibetan fanatics, and as Ramdas said, they will probably cut our throats for us. I was thankful that Hilda's marvellous memory gave us even that moment for preparation and facing the difficulty. I saw in a flash that she was quite right. We had been inveigled across the frontier. These mutis were Tibetans, Buddhist inquisitors, enemies. Tibet is the most jealous country on earth. It allows no stranger to intrude upon its borders. I had to meet the worst. I stood there, a single white man armed only with one revolver, answerable for the lives of two English ladies, and accompanied by a cringing outcast Gorka Cook and half a dozen doubtful Nepalese bearers. To fly was impossible. We were fairly trapped. There was nothing for it but to wait and put a bold face on our utter helplessness. I turned to our spoiled child. Lady Meadowcroft, I said very seriously, 
this is danger real danger now listen to me you must do as you are bid no crying no cowardice your life and ours depend upon it we must none of us give way we must pretend to be brave show one sign of fear and these people will probably cut our throats on the spot here to my immense surprise lady meadowcroft rose to the height of the situation oh as long as it isn't disease she answered resignedly i'm not much afraid of anything i should mind the plague a great deal more than i mind a set of howling savages by that time the men in yellow robes had almost come up to us it was clear they were boiling over with indignation but they still did everything decently and in order one who was dressed in finer vestments than the rest a portly person with the fat greasy cheeks and drooping flesh of a celibate church dignitary whom i therefore judged to be the abbot or chief lama of the monastery gave orders to his subordinates in a language which we did not understand his men obeyed him in a second they had closed us round as in a ring or cordon then the chief lama stepped forward with an authoritative air like puba in the play and said something in the same tongue to the cook who spoke a little tibetan it was obvious from his manner that ramdas had told them all about us for the lama selected the cook as interpreter at once without taking any notice of myself the ostensible head of the pity expedition what does he say i asked as soon as he had finished speaking the cook who had been salaaming all the time at the risk of a broken back in his most utterly abject and grovelling attitude made answer tremulously in his broken english this is priest sahabi of the temple he very angry because why european sahabin mem sahabs come into tibet land no european no hindu must come into tibet land priest sahabi say cut all european throats let no poor man go back like him come to him own country i looked as if the message were purely indifferent to me tell him i said smiling though at some little effort we were not trying to enter tibet our rascally guide misled us we were going to kulak in the maharaja's territory we will turn back quietly to the maharaja's land if the priest sahabid will allow us to camp out for the night here i glanced at hilda and lady meadowcroft i must say their bearing under these trying circumstances was thoroughly worthy of two english ladies they stood erect looking as all tibet might come and they would smile at it scornfully the cook interpreted my remarks as well as he was able his tibetan being probably about equal in quality to his english but the chief lama made a reply which i could see for myself was by no means friendly what is his answer i asked the cook in my haughtiest voice i am haughty with difficulty our interpreter salaamed once more shaking in his shoes if he wore any priest sahib say that all lies that all damn lies you is european missionary very bad man you want to go to lhasa but no white sahib must go to lhasa holy city lhasa for buddhists only this is not the way to kulak this is not maharaja's land this place belong a dalai lama head of all lamas have house at lhasa but priests i have no you european missionary want to go to lhasa 
convert buddhists because ramdas tell him so ramdas i exclaimed thoroughly angry by this time the rouge the scoundrel he has not only deserted us but betrayed us as well he has told this lie on purpose to set the tibetans against us we must face the worst now our one chance is to cajole these people the fat priest spoke again what does he say this time i asked he say ramdas tell him all this because ramdas good man very good man ramdas converted buddhist you pay ramdas to guide you to lhasa but ramdas good man not want to let you lopi and see holy city bring you here instead then tell priest sahib about it and he chuckled inwardly what will they do to us lady meadowcroft asked her face very white though her manner was more courageous than i could easily have believed of her i don't know i answered biting my lip but we must not give way we must put a bold face upon it their bark after all may be worse than their bite we may still persuade them to let us go back again the men in yellow robes motioned us to move on towards the village and monastery we were their prisoners and it was useless to resist so i ordered the bearers to take up the tents and baggage lady meadowcroft resigned herself to the inevitable we mounted the path in a long line the lamas in yellow closely regarding our draggled little procession i tried my best to preserve my composure and above all else not to look dejected as we approached the village with its squalid and fetid huts we caught the sound of bells innumerable bells tinkling at regular intervals many people trooped out from their houses to look at us all flat-faced all with oblique eyes all stolidly sullenly stupidly passive they seemed curious as to our dress and appearance but not apparently hostile we walked on to the low line of the monastery with its pyramidal roof and its queer flower-vase minarets after a moment's discussion they ushered us into the temple or chapel which was evidently also their communal council room and place of deliberation we entered trembling we had no great certainty that we would ever get out of it alive again end of chapter 10 part 1 read by lars rolander